All right, so today we are going to finish up chapter 21 of Revelation. And we've been three weeks on it. We really could have spent a lot more time on it. But we're going to be finishing up today just because we have to keep moving. But this is going to be a week where we just really have to listen to what the Lord has in store for us. John is describing now the new Jerusalem that's going to be coming out of heaven that's going to set down on the new earth that's been created and a new and the new heavens and uh, quite honestly we can't even begin to comprehend what we're going to be talking about today this is a mind-blowing session because we cannot comprehend all that God has in store you know i've i've heard it said that that we are living now in the land of the living moving towards the land of the dying we are living now, so we're alive, and when we die, we move to the land of the dead. But can I just reverse that? Because I think that's more biblical. That we are living in the land of the dying today, and that we're moving towards the land of the living. But you have to do something here while you are in the land of the dying to get to the land of the living. Otherwise, you will just transfer yourself into the land of the really dead forever and ever, right? So we are living in the land of the dying, because the moment that we were born, our bodies began to die. I know we're growing, but yet our body's dying because of the decay, because of the curse of sin. So we are living in the land of the dying, moving towards the land of the living, once we make the transaction with Christ that we accept his death to cover the sin of our death, so that we then can move to the land of the living. Does that make sense? And when I think of life this way, it gives me a different perspective. It gives me a better perspective of how loosely I should really hold on to the things of this world. Yes, and I enjoy nice things. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy nice homes and nice cars and and nice things. I'm not against that. But yet I don't want to hold on to those so tightly that my grip is more on this world rather than on the world that's coming. Because I am in the land of the dying here. Everything de- everything rusts. Everything degrades. Everything um, goes backwards. But I'm looking forward to that day when that's over. And we truly are living in the land of the living. And that's time that's coming. So don't get impatient. Because I know patience is a virtue. And we're not all the best patiently people, not all the time. So we just have to be patient and we learn. And that's what we're going to do today. As we talk this through, as we read through Revelation 21, beginning at verse 9, we're going to go slowly. We're going to read each few passages and we're going to chat about them a little bit. So um, just open your Bible or read on the screen with us as we go through this. So let's begin. Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 9. It says, one of the one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So let's try to imagine ourselves now being taken away in the spirit, sitting on a high mountain, along with this angel, And we're getting ready to see the most amazing thing ever. We can't even begin to describe what John is about to see. 
John is overwhelmed here as he begins to describe the great city. And it's interesting that the angel describes the city as a bride, as the wife of the lamb. Now, in all respect to all the brides in this place, you were the most beautiful on your wedding day. Think about it. And I'm not at all saying you're not beautiful now, so don't get me wrong. (laughs) But a bride on her wedding day is dressed beyond measure, right? I mean, she is the most beautiful she's ever going to be on her wedding day. And I think it's a, I think it's interesting that, that John's not saying that the city is the bride. He's not trying to, um, give it a personality. No, he's trying to make it a, um, he's trying to show the relevance of the beauty of this city as it would be if we were describing the beauty of a bride on her wedding day. Not just the bride, but the bride of Christ. That's amazing. That's, that's just a good way to think about it. So then he goes on to describe it as, verse 11, it says, The city shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. What we're getting ready to see here is the glory of God being radiating through the city. The glory of God. You know, if we were to see the glory of God right now in our flesh, it would destroy us because we have evil in us. The glory of God is so powerful, so overwhelming, that that only a person that is holy, as Adam was created holy, as Jesus was holy, could look at God face to face. But we, because we are under the curse of sin, even though we're saved and we're redeemed, we're not holy yet to see the face of God. So the glory of God is so brilliant here that it, that it just, it, it emanates. I don't know what better word to say. It emanates from the city, through the city. Let's continue on. Verse 12. The city had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. All right, so now this city was surrounded by a great wall with gates on each side, totaling 12. And each gate was identified by one of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a reason for that. We'll get to that in a minute. So these gates are intended for people to come in and out of. They're not intended to keep anybody in or to keep anybody out. It shows that the city is a place of movement. People are going to be moving in and out of the city through one of these 12 gates. Verse 14, we're going to talk about the wall. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So now we're talking about the wall. The wall had 12 foundations, which we're assuming to be stacked on one another. We really don't understand what these foundations are going to be, how they're going to be configured. But a foundation is something that something else is built upon, right? So I think it's significant that on each of the 12 foundations, 
each of the 12 layers of foundation, there were the names of the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples that walked this earth with Christ, with Christ while he was alive on, on earth. So we have a great wall with 12 foundations and 12 gates. The 12 gates are named by the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 foundation stones are named by the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. This ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament. This brings it together so that the city will be comprised of both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. And I think it's really interesting that we look at the foundation. What, the, what does the foundation really mean? A foundation is, is, is only there if something is going to be built on it. And for the fact that the foundation has the 12 gates with the 12 tribes of Israel and the foundation has the 12 names of the apostles, disciples, they have gone ahead and built for us a foundation. And it reminds me of how thankful we need to be for those that have gone ahead of us. I was talking to somebody earlier this week. And, you know, this church has a history, um, good and bad, but it's got a really good history. There's been a lot of good things that have come out of this church over the years. There's been a lot of lives that have been touched for God through this church. And, you know, I'm just thankful that I can be one of the pastors, one of the many pastors of this church. And here's the thing. I'm not tearing down the foundation from previous pastors so that I can build my own foundation. No, I am building on the foundations that previous pastors have built. Pastor Rip was one of those pastors here. And I'm building on the foundation that he laid the work that he put in, and also the pastors that I remember. I remember uh, Pastor Shorsh. I remember Pastor Rutledge. I remember Pastor Fred Spring. I remember Pastor Shorsh again. He was here twice. I remember Pastor Lowell Anderson, Mike Mitchell. You know, And again, every one of these names, if you've been here, brings back memories. Maybe some good, maybe some not so good. But the reality is they built the foundation that we are today. And I'm thankful for that. And I want to stand on that foundation and continue to build on what they started. That's honoring those that have gone before us. And I think it's very appropriate that we do that. And that's exactly, I think, why one of the things we can get out of the fact that the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples are given name, they're naming part of the city because of the foundation that they've laid. Amen? So, Pastor Rip, thank you for the years that you've put here. Appreciate that. And the years that you're continuing to put here. Because <laughs> we're not letting you go. So now let's talk about the dimensions of this city, because this is going to blow us away. I'm telling you, this is just out of our mind. We can't even begin to describe this. Verse 12, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, which is about 13 to 1,500 miles in our lengths and as wide as it was long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits, 
which is about 240 feet thick, or some translations say high. So here we have this huge city. I mean, it is so big. I'm going to show a picture for a minute in a minute here about how it would relate to America. But it's 1,500 miles square. If we were to place this on America, it would look like this. It would sit, it would cover the area from Canada to Mexico, from the Appalachian Mountains to California. It's huge. Now, it's not going to sit here. It's going to sit on Israel, in Israel. But I'm just putting it on America because we can associate America. How many people, how many people have driven from here to Florida? Okay, that's about 1,200 miles. All right. So you could continue driving another 300 miles or so and still be in the city of Jerusalem. I mean, it's absolutely beyond our imagination to describe the size of the city. Now, not only is that, but it's 1,500 miles tall. The Earth's atmosphere is five to nine miles is where the earth, where the weather patterns happen. Five to nine miles is where the weather patterns happen. Uh, uh, upwards of 30 miles is the stratosphere, and that's where the ozone layer is. The, mesos- the mesosphere is 53 miles high, and that's where the meteors burn up. So when you see a meteor shower, the meteors, they are burning up within 53 miles or so of the earth. That's where they burn up in that area up there. The thermosphere is upwards of 372 miles, and that's where the satellites live. The city is going to be 1,500 miles high. Think about that. We can't comprehend that. That doesn't compute in my mind. Well into outer space will the city reach out to. So what's the shape of the city? Well, the city has, it's described as a cube. It may be a cube, I don't know. I've heard it described more like a pyramid. Um, From this perspective, if it was a cube, then what's the purpose of the walls? Because the sides of the city would become its wall. If it's like a pyramid... It starts angling up that a wall might make sense because you'd have to have a wall around where it starts to angle. So, I mean, in my mind, I could see this to be uh, a series of mountain ranges. And right after the wall becomes the foothills. And it slowly starts climbing up. And it has multiple mountain ranges and peaks all ending at the at the mountain of 1,500 miles high, which is be the the great house of God, and where God would sit, and God would be at that point of heaven, and and it were on the New Jerusalem, and and there would be a banquet hall up on the top of that mountain that would be so big that all of humanity that saved all of the Earth's population at that time would be able to gather there for a great banquet, and there will be probably millions of opportunities over the millions of years where we're going to all gather. In God's great banquet hall. Now I'm, I'm having an imagination here, okay? Can I have an imagination? 
because I don't know any way to describe it. But it's going to be absolutely grand and up totally beyond our ability to comprehend it. I've, I'm reading a book, or I've read a book by Tim Sheets. This is the name of the book, Heaven Made Real. I read a lot of books. You can see if you're in my office, there's a lot of books scattered around. Um, and in this book, Tim Sheets describes the scene like this. He says, on this high peak, the home of God himself, our banquet facilities, immense enough to hold every believer who ever lived. Over the millions of years, we will have many opportunities to gather there. Surrounding this highest peak for hundreds of miles would be mountains and valleys on which are built the many mansions of the saints. That means from the home of God, you can see the residences of his people far as the eye can see. Now this is exciting because you and I have a mansion that is being built in heaven. Why do I say that? John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And for that where I am, there you all may be, may be also. So Jesus, being the carpenter that he is, is in heaven today building your mansion and building my mansion, and it's probably going to reside on one of the mountains of this big city. Or maybe on the valley, you know, I mean, in the beautiful places, whatever you like, whatever whatever atmosphere you like to, to see, whatever environment you want to surround yourself with, God is creating an, a mansion for you, and we will be living together in this great city in the mansion that God is building, that Jesus is building for you. And I can only imagine how grand it's going to be if he's spending 2,000 plus years building it. Last week, we talked about a list of who will be there and who will not be there. And I think it's unique here. I think it's interesting why I'm going to pull these two verses together. Because last week, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, we found out who will not be in this great city. Revelation chapter 28, verse 8, it says, But the cowardly... The unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the doubters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of hell. They will not be here. So it's interesting that John, in chapter 14, says that let, your, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The same writer here, John wrote the Gospel of John, and now he's also writing the Revelation of Jesus, and the word believe is brought up in both places. So how important it is that we believe? How important is it that we believe what we're reading? See, the problem with this world is they don't believe. And like I said last week, there's going to be more really good people in hell than bad people. Why? Because they didn't believe. I think that is such an important point that we must believe and apply and act in our belief. So if, we're, if, if, if you and I are believers in, 
in God and a believer in Jesus, then he says, let not your heart be troubled. I like that because we live in a very troublesome world, don't we? And it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. So I want to take this passage to heart. Let not your heart be troubled. Therefore, believe in me and my Father. And then look forward to the mansions of heaven. Isn't that good? Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't it give you a little bit of peace in your heart this morning? I hope so. Let's go back up and pick it up at verse 18. We're talking about the walls now. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. And the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. Man, I tell you, I can't think about this. I mean, I don't even know what some of these, I don't think I've ever seen some of these jewels. I don't certainly don't own all of them. But if those walls are built of all these jewels, and let's just try to imagine what we're seeing here, that each layer, if, if we're stacking them on top of each other, and let's say this wall is 240 feet tall, we have 12 layers of jewels. That means each jewel would be 20 feet thick, tall, right? Stacked on one over the other, stretching hundreds of miles that you know each each side is 1500 miles let's say 1200 miles easier math divide no it could be 5 1500 miles it could be 500 miles between gates and there'll be one gate's a big pearl <laughs> again wow that'd be a big oyster <laughs> a big pearl and you have 500 miles of 20 foot tall jewels 12 of those stacked on top of each other, as clear as glass, show that the glory of God is going to shine through that. Do you imagine the colors we're going to see? Can you imagine in your mind's eye what this is going to look like a few miles away? You see this city, the colors of these jewels shining, emanated through the glory of God, through the clear. It's going to be unbelievable. We can't even begin to describe it. John, John Walford, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, says this, The glory of the new Jerusalem is as awe-inspiring as its physical dimensions. The wall is said to be of jasper and probably as clear as crystal. As crystal. The city as a whole is portrayed as made of pure gold like clear glass. John is endeavoring to describe a scene that in most respects transcends earthly experience. I mean, that's an understatement. The constant mention of transparency indicates that the city is designed to transmit the glory of God. You see, the jewels themselves don't give off any light, but they would radiate it. 
as the light shines through it, it's like a prism. Can you, you know, you know what prisms are, right? You see, shine through a prism and the, and the, and the light is broken into different colors and what it shows on the, on the wall. Well, just magnify that a billion times. And that's what you're going to be seeing. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. I can't even be in the, like, mind blowing. I told you. I warned you, right? Now this is go, let's go to this takes us now to the source of the light that we're going to see in this world. John, let's continue on, verse 21 through 23. John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. All right, so what are we talking about here? First of all, John, being a Jewish man, Think about the Jewish context here. It was very obvious to him when he walked in and he didn't see a temple that was obvious because the temple was very important to the Jewish faith. The temple is where the presence of God is at. It's that the Holy of Holies is in the temple. And John said, I didn't see any temples. I didn't see a temple. Well, why is that? Do you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to be a, a a group of people that are called out to be separate from the world. If the church is going to be a change agent in a dark world, then it cannot be like the world. So we're a peculiar people. We're a priesthood. We're called out from the world. And so the church is to be set apart from the world. That's why being a part of a church is so important that you can be part of the called out people. Not that we can lord it over the world. No, not at all. But that we can be a change agent of the world. That we can be, show the love of Christ so that the love of God would, the glory of God would radiate through us into the dark world that we can be a change agent, that we can change those people around us for the good, right? That's what the church is about. So it's interesting now that John goes says that there is no temple, or in our vernacular, there are no churches in heaven. Well, why is that? Because there's no reason to be called out. Because there's no reason to be separate. Because everybody there will be holy. So we don't need to have a church setting anymore. We don't need to have a building or a place where we go. We don't need to be called out from the world because the world is already holy and pure. Therefore, there is no need for the temple. The presence of God emanates. You know, it's an amazing thing. I, I, one, of the, one of the biggest descriptions I like to think about when I look at the crucifixion of Christ, when, that, when he hung on the cross and when he cried out, it is finished, and darkness came on the world for three hours. That was Passover. At that moment in time, the priest was entering the Holy of Holies to do sacrifice for the sins of the people for the previous year. And as he's going into that Holy of Holies, what happens? Oh, my God. God takes that temple curtain and he tears it top to bottom and he says, my presence is for all people at all time. You don't need to be a priest now to come in the Holy of Holies because Jesus is your priest and he is your sacrifice. Amen. Oh, glory to God. I get a little glory. I get a little Holy Spirit, a little inspiration on this one. Thank you, Jesus. And that's what it's going to be like. 
when we don't have to have a temple because the presence of God is going to be with us at all times. Amen. I love that. Oh. But then it goes on, verse 24 and 27. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, this is where it gets interesting to me. Because we've just read about the glory of God and what he's done. And we see the promises of God's word. And I took a little bit of of, of freedom to describe what we could anticipate possibly that New, that New Jerusalem would look like, maybe being in its mountain ranges and so forth. But I want to talk about some other things here that I want to be very careful how I state this. Because what I'm about to say is is speculation to some degree. So this is not doctrinal. This isn't something I don't want anybody to argue with me about later, the fact that it's not in the Bible. I know that. But I think we can have a creative license a little bit to think about some things that God had might have in store for us. So I want to take you on a little journey of what might be happening there that we don't know about. There's a lot of mysteries in the Bible that aren't clearly spelled out. And this is not all my idea, by the way. Again, I got some of this idea from Tim Sheets from this book, okay, and other books. But let me just ask some questions. It says that John is describing something here, and he's talking about the nations and the kings of the earth that will walk by the light of the city, right? The nations and the kings of the earth, and nothing impure will ever come into the city, ever again. I mean, first of all, we can't even comprehend that. Never a bad thought. Never a sinful deed. Never an agenda that is for themselves against somebody else. I mean, no thought of evil will ever be there forever and ever and ever. So my question comes, though, is that when we talk about the nations and the kings of the earth, who are they? Who are the nations and the kings of the earth that John is seeing here. Now, many Bible scholars define the nations to be Gentiles versus the Jewish people. And I can understand that as well. I can, I can, could agree with that. But there's another idea that is, again, just an idea, but I think it has some credibility to it to consider. Here's the basis. There's nowhere in Scripture that clearly says what happens to the people that survive and thrive through the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. There, we know that Satan has been bound for a thousand years, and at the end of that thousand years, he's released for a season, a short time, and he goes around the world to deceive as many as he can, to come up with one last rebellion against God. And as hard as it is to imagine how people living in a utopia situation could actually reject Christ, the devil is very successful 
in gathering a massive army that would come for one last battle against God. And we know, because we've already studied this, that God comes down from heaven, and he doesn't even have to speak the word. Fire just comes from heaven and destroys him. And destroys Satan, destroys all those that were followed him, and they are banished to the lake of fire, only to await the great white throne judgment that is coming in a little bit later for a judgment of all the evil, all the dead that have died, right? But what about those that were in the millennial reign that were still in their human flesh bodies because those people in the millennium are human people. They're the ones that came out of the tribulation as humans in their flesh nature. What happens to those that didn't rebel, that followed Christ through that thousand-year period of time, and they're still alive? See, the Bible doesn't say what happens to these people. There's not an indicator of another rapture. There's no indication that these people are given glorified bodies. Now we, as the church, you and I living today, we will be glorified in our heavenly bodies. Bodies like Christ had after his resurrection. That's what we're going to be. And we're going to have been that way as soon as we die, as soon as, as, soon as the, um, uh, the rapture happens and we are raptured, and uh, then, there will be, then we'll be transferred into our glorified bodies like Christ. And we're going to stay that way forever and ever and ever. We'll never change at that point. But I'm talking now about people that have been human, that have never experienced death. What happens to those people? Could it be, I'm asking a question, could it be that these people enter the new heavens and the new earth as humans? We'll be there in our glorified bodies. But could it be that they could enter the new heavens and the new earth to destined to live forever as humans? If you go back to what John first stated in verse 21 of Revelation 21, the first, first verse, he said another thing that he noticed that he said there were no more seas. In other words, the oceans that make up 70% of our pop, of our land, of our, of our globe, 70% of it is covered by salt water. But the new earth will not have any seas. It will have water. It will have rivers and probably some lakes, fresh water. But there will be no saltwater seas. Why is that, do you think? Could it be that that land mass would be needed to support an eternity of humans that are repopulating the earth? And we, as glorified saints, are those that would be the control or the ruling with Christ? Ruling the, the ruling the, the 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 natural flesh people, I know I'm speculating, and I don't want you to get upset. I'm not saying this is doctrinal. I'm just giving you some ideas to think about, because I do see this. I see God in His nature, not to be thwarted or not to be destroyed or not to be defeated by Satan. We understand that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were created, how were they created? How were they created? Perfectly, right? How long was their lifespan going to be? Forever, right? It wasn't until sin entered that they, did death ever enter the equation. God created Adam and Eve to live forever in their human bodies. 
God has created these bodies so amazingly that if it wouldn't have been for the curse of sin, these bodies never would have decayed. We would never have gotten old and decrepit and sore and tired. Our bodies are created to renew themselves. In fact, I've heard it said that every seven years, the body goes through a complete renewal. So I'm just asking the question. And I see the nature of God to say, Satan, I'm going to show you that you did not win. You just temporarily set my plan back a few thousand years. God created Adam and Eve to be in fellowship with him with the intention that they would populate the earth and live forever in proper fellowship with God. So could it be that that's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth? I know this is mind-blowing because I never thought about this. And I'm still working it through in my own mind. But I don't see it beyond God to do something that grand and that glorious. That God would say, I am going to continue with the plan that I had originally created, and that is going to be putting man on earth to populate the earth in their human nature to live with me forever and ever. Let's go back to this chapter, Revelation twenty four twenty seven. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth... And then, and the nations, so, and the nations will be brought into it. See, it just talks about the population that's going to be people moving in and out of the city. Very well, maybe we have our mansions and glorified bodies are in the city, and maybe those that are in their human flesh are living outside the city in the repopulated world. Just an idea. But if we look, another clue though, let's go to back, let's go to the next chapter 22. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, let's read this. Then the angel showed me the, net, the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the what? Of the nations. Verse 3, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light as they will, as they will reign over forever and ever. So there's a, the, the way I understand this could be that the city doesn't need the sun because of the radiance of God, but the sun and moon could still be there. The new heavens are going to be created. So there could be sun, moon, and all the other stars throughout the earth, sunsets, sunrises, all the beauty of that could still happen outside of the city. And now the people are just populating the world and we're being able to enjoy it. And it said that on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and no longer will, will there be any curse. See, the word healing here is not the same word that was used in Isaiah 53 verse 5. That we're, we're, by his stripes we are healed. That's not that kind of healing. This word for healing is used for preservation. It's preservation eternally that as you eat of this fruit, that you are preserved eternally. And we as glorified I don't know if we're going to have to eat from the fruit in our glorified bodies. I know we will eat, but I don't know if we need to have that. But possibly, quite possibly, 
the human nature needs to eat of the fruit to sustain them forever. You see, Adam and Eve, there was a tree of life in the garden. There was a tree of knowledge and good and good and good and evil, right? And they were banished from the Eden, the Garden of Eden so that they could not eat from the tree of life in their sinful condition. God removed that. He took the tree of life out of Eden and now it's in heaven. And now, quite possibly, the humans there are eating from the tree of life that was originally intended for Adam and Eve to eat from in their perfect condition. But when sin entered, God said, no, take them out. And he put cherubim to guard the garden so that man couldn't get back in. Now, we don't know what happened to the garden. We're assuming maybe the Bible is, again, mysteries. The garden may have been taken out, and maybe that's in the new earth today, or the new, new Jerusalem today. Lots of things to think about, guys. And here's the point of it all. It's exciting. <laughs> it's exciting. It's something that we can get rid of the doldrums of life and think about the good things that God has in store. And the nature of God is so grand that I don't have to worry about it. I, I don't, again, this is not theologically sound. I don't know. I'm not a, I, somebody might say, Mike, you better stop talking about that. And if they do, I will. But right now, it's okay because I have an imagination and I see God wanting to expand my imagination because, you know, God's glory is going to be ever increasing. Even when we get to heaven, we're never going to be able to understand God. We're going to constantly be learning new of God forever. That's how big God is. Our little minds just can't hold them. No matter how, how we try. So Jackie, why don't you come? And you can start to uh, play something and maybe I'll stop talking. <laughs> now I said it's a lot of things here today that are interesting. But here's the thing I want you to get out of it. I don't want you to dwell on the things that could be wrong. I want you to dwell on the things of God's promises. God has given us great promises. And like we said at the beginning, we are living in the land of the dying, moving toward the land of the living. And when we get to that land of the living, it's going to blow our minds. Dwell on that. Dwell on the promises that God has for us. Dwell on the fact that God says that I am I am for you, not against you. Greater is he that is within me than he that is within the world. Dwell on those thoughts. Dwell on the fact that God has a great a mansion in store for you today. Go away with those thoughts and then just let the imagination of what God might have in store take us further. But I want to encourage you the way Paul encouraged the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 18, he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, again, living in the land of the dying, we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Amen? That's what this is intended to do, to renew our spirits day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Amen. These light and momentary troubles, like we said a while ago, days can drag by. Days can drag on, but years fly by. It's amazing how how the years fly by. Light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes on not what is seen, 
but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. That's heavenly things, guys. We fix our eyes on the things of heaven. We fix our eyes on the land of the living. And we work through the days of the dying to get to the land of the living. And here's the thing. We want to take as many with us as we can. We want to evangelize. And we want to encourage the world. We want to be that light in the dark world. That's our, that's our call. That's your purpose. That's your mission today. Is to share the light of the God, of the gospel to others so that we all can share in that land of the living. Amen? Stand with me if you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day today. We thank you, Lord, for all the things that you have in store for us. And God, it is such a good thing for us to know what you have in store for us. We are so excited about the things that are ahead that we can't even begin to comprehend. But God, it's fun. It's fun to think about them. It's it's exciting to think about what you have in store for us. And Lord, if I've said anything today that is contrary, if I said anything today that I shouldn't have, forgive me. I, I don't want to add anything to this Bible. I don't want to do that. It's not my intention. But God, I want to encourage us to be excited about what you have, the mysteries of what are ahead for us. I just want that to be our goal today. And so I pray that you are going to go with us throughout our days today, our homes, our places of work. I pray, God, that we would be that evangelist, that we would be the light that would be shined through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship. Let's sing this song before we go home today. Father, we are just coming to you, Lord, with a heart of gratitude today. 
knowing that you are in charge of all things. And you know, it's going to be a real blessing when we can come into that time, that land of the living, where we don't have to worry about who's in charge. We don't have to worry about what I should do or what I shouldn't do because you will be there and you will give us those marching orders and we'll be, we'll be glad. We'll be, we'll be happy to do all that you've asked us to do and we can simply work as part of our reward with glory giving you as our king and our master that we just rest in you. Our work will be restful. Our work will be passionate. Our work will be joyful. It won't be burdensome like it is today at times. That's part of the reward of God's greatness is that he will restore in us a heart of of work, a heart of accomplishment. And we'll be able to watch you do great, great things and the wonders of your majesty. Oh, God, it's just going to be amazing. And we're so looking forward to that day. But until that day comes, God, give us peace in our heart. Give us give us contentment, but yet, God, give us the ability to want to do more for you. Help us not to ever get back into ourselves. But, God, we would just focus and serve and honor you above all things. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Be blessed.